Welcome to Truth, Lies, and Cover-Ups. I'm Tracy Brown, the fraud-busting body language expert. I've spent the last 20 years reading people, uncovering secrets hidden in plain sight to find the truth in crimes, politics, and billion-dollar business deals. And I want you to be able to tell whose pants are on fire, make better decisions, and build your bottom line as well. Get ready. Let's dive in. It's Tracy. I am back for another fun-filled episode of Truth, Lies, and Cover-Ups with Producer of the Year, as awarded by me, Alex. <laughs> Glad to finally win an award. I need a little bit of recognition. Know, hey, but get it. this. I'm in a really good mood today because you know what I'm doing tomorrow? I got a, I've got a coffee, an afternoon coffee date. <gasps> you have a date? I do. I got with a date who? Yeah. Somebody's actually going to go on a date with me, which is... Should be all they need to uh, know never to go on a second date with me. <laughs> I don't know. Okay, wait. Okay, so, so what's her name? No. Yes. You'll get nothing and like it. I'm not telling you anything. Where are y'all going? I'm not telling you that either. When I said I'm not telling you anything, that meant I'm not telling you anything. I just, I just want to go. Yeah, and- I know what you want to do. You want to show up there. You want to hide in the corner. You're going to wear a scarf, a face mask. Yeah. You're going to wear a winter hat with a little fuzzy ball on the top so you can be completely incognito with large uh-huh. sunglasses. Yeah. And you are going to watch the interaction and then report back to me on, on how incredibly doomed I am. And I don't need to hear any of this. I know my life is doomed without you. <laughs> well, just because um, I, we've done that in the past doesn't mean it couldn't work this time. I can't believe you just outed me with that. <laughs> I was not involved in any of those. It was entirely you. Well, I, I, I like to involve myself. Hey, hey, all I do is profile people for a living. I'll just be in the corner. I know. And I don't necessarily want you profiling this. Hmm. I don't know. I think you're missing an opportunity for intel. Yeah. And what I'm saying is I don't think I want that intel just yet. Oh. Give me a little bit of time. A little later. I, yeah. It's, it would also just completely freak me out knowing that you're over there. And I know what you're going to do. You would move behind her and then you would make funny faces at me just to mess me up. No, I don't think I'd do that. I think I'd get there early and try to be friends with her. That's what I would do. That's the absolute worst thing that could happen. That would be so good for everyone. Because then you would give her the read on me and then she's out the door and we know how that works. (laughs) Hmm. Well, okay. You're on your own. All right. So maybe for the third date, we'll let you come along. Yeah. That sounds great. I'll bring Matt. It'll be, oh, it'll be a double date. It'll be great. Oh, good Lord. Mm-hmm. What have I just gotten into. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. Who are we interviewing today? Today. Oh, um, Tipper X. You know Tipper X? I don't know Tipper X. Oh, he was an FBI informant. Uh-huh. Yeah. And he did some insider trading. He did some insider trading and get this. This is the stuff right out of movies. And he started getting tips from just, you know, people and Uh like, like people that worked, I think at, at Moody's and he, uh, he was dropping off some dry cleaning. He walked out and two FBI agents walked up and flanked him and said, Hey, let's go have coffee. (laughs) And it's all about, I know, what do you do when the FBI says, hey, let's go get coffee? We call you and we have you hang out in the back of the coffee shop in your hat and big sunglasses and analyze the whole thing. I would probably call a lawyer. I would not call me. Yeah, that'd be a better idea. <laughs> right. Yeah. So so this is what he did. And um, he he wore a wire for 
like two years and he did and it was part of this huge bust on wall street so anyway he is fascinating and uh yeah convicted felon convicted felon no kidding that sounds like a really interesting one I, i'm curious how somebody could wear a wire for that long and you know when i when I think of somebody wearing a wire, what I'm thinking of are these old TV shows from like the seventies and the eighties, where it was something like a, a portable Walkman cassette style recording device that they had to cram in their pants. And then they literally had a wire taped to their chest coming up, snaking over and then a microphone hanging out of their shirt collar or something. And you're thinking, how on earth is somebody not going to see this? But they must've improved that technology by now. Well, he said it was about the size of a phone and he put it in his pocket. And then really? and then he said someone asked him, someone got, got hip to what he was doing. And you got to listen to find out what they asked him to do. Come on. Don't leave me hanging. They asked him to go swimming. <laughs> <laughs> and what did he say? Well, I think the said, answer is yes. Absolutely. Yeah, he said yes. Yeah. He's like, yeah. great. We'll go swimming. Who cares about the recorder? Just jump yeah. right in. Yeah, yeah, I know. But do you we have think- any? Do, what? I mean, you would think I, I, I've got an iPod that's at least 20 years old mm-hmm. and it fits in my hand, the size of the palm of my hand. So about mm-hmm. the size of a phone, roughly. Yeah. And I can put this is 20 year old technology and I could put every song I own, which is well over 100 gigs mm-hmm. uh, on that iPod. And you're telling me they can't make a recording device smaller than that? Well, I'm just telling you what happened. Huh. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. Do we have any other crimes we need to talk about? I mean, we got Tipper X. Well, I got one up and save it for a special, special occasion. Oh, is this today that day? It could be. It involves Chloe, 24-year-old. She was being held by the Honolulu Police Police Department following her arrest at the airport for criminal complaint is that she presented the screeners at the airport in Honolulu with a fake vaccination card. Oh, I heard about this. Yeah, exactly. So what she wanted to do was bypass the state's mandatory two week quarantine period. Uh, And evidently they caught her. And the way they caught her, get this, when they wrote on the card that she had the Moderna vaccine, right? Mm -hmm. They Mm -hmm. misspelled it. It's M-A-D-E-R-N-A instead of M-O. So they wrote M-A like ma. So she misspelled Moderna and got busted. Well, A, how on earth did somebody even catch that? Because I wouldn't have seen it, especially since those are handwritten. Uh, and B, how did they know to research that and actually found out? That, that's pretty impressive. Well, I wonder how, di- how deep they're digging into that. Because I've heard a couple of fake cards. Hmm. I- I've, I've heard of a couple situations like that. I bet there's a bunch of fake cards out there. Well, I'm sure there are. I have no doubts about that. Uh, so get this. Do you know what the, uh, the penalty for that is? I don't know. You get kicked out of Hawaii forever? Up to a year in prison. Oh. Up to 5,000 fines. Wow. No That's kidding. a lot. What did she end up getting? Well, we don't know the answer to that question yet. She has not had her, uh, she hasn't even entered a plea at this point, but she is uh, out on bond. It was $2,000 bond uh, for $2,000 for a fake card. If you think about it, that's pretty crazy. Oh, yikes. She yeah. should have just taken that shot. stuff serious, though. Yeah. Why not just get a shot? It's not that big a deal. You know, I would say that universally globally why not just get the shot it's just a shot it's not mm-hmm. the end of the world it's not going to make you magnetic tracy are you sure i'm positive you will mm. not turn magnetic you will not suddenly attach yourself to your car oh i thought that would be kind of fun compasses will not point to you oh any more than they already do yeah i know all compasses point to tracy <laughs> you are a true north mm. all right so let's get into an interview you ready to go tipper x here we go 
thank you so much for joining me today. I'm I'm just I'm thrilled to get to meet you. It's a pleasure to be here, Tracy. Thanks for having me on the uh, the podcast. Oh yeah. So now you um you're a little like I'm so just fascinated because you have like a code name and everything. <laughs> I do. I do. Tipper X, uh, formerly known formerly known as Tipper X, about uh, ten years ago. And I'm sure we're gonna get in get into that. Oh yeah, because now the FBI gave you this. Uh, was it like no? Is it was it your name, like a code name, or was it like a case file? What what's the deal? The FBI gave me the name. Um, my company's name uh, was Lenexa, and so L A N E X A. And so mm-hmm. I think I learned later that's how they pulled the the X uh, for Tipper X. But it wasn't it wasn't me naming myself. I had no idea uh, I was Tipper X. I actually saw it in the Wall Street Journal, and it, it took it took me a few minutes to figure out. Oh my God. Uh, I think I'm Tipper X. And so they, they confirmed that. So, oh my God. Oh, that just gave me goosebumps. Okay. So, so let's get into what happened. Cause you had sure. kind of a situation go on. Um, you were a hedge fund guy. Right. Right. So yeah. I went, uh, so I grew up um, in the, in the suburbs of Atlanta. Um, first in my family to attend an Ivy league college uh, in the late nineties, applied to Wharton undergraduate university of Pennsylvania, prestigious school, um, got into the hedge fund industry, as many do out of the business schools after I graduated. And I knew uh, pretty much from the beginning in my career when I started that there were people in the industry um, trading on illicit inside information. And if people aren't familiar with that, um, there's legal insider trading, which corporate officials all the time have stock selling plans. And But there's also illegal insider trading. So the information you're trading on, it has to have three elements. It has to be non-public, so you can't Google it and find it. And it has to be something that would move the stock price. So you think about mm-hmm. a corporate quarterly earnings announcement that happens four times a year or a corporate acquisition where a company yeah. gets acquired, the stock's up. Mm-hmm. So that's non-public. It has to be material to the stock price. So if I were to ask my local Starbucks in Western New Jersey, what are your sales this quarter? It's not going to move the stock. If I fly to Seattle and play golf with the CFO and he says, this is our earnings next quarter, that that's material. Got it. And it has to be stolen from the company. So the crime is actually the, the information is stolen from the company. Oh. It's sometimes hard for people to realize like, all right, I get it's unfair, but like, why is it? I mean, it's a, it's a felony, but why? And it's sort of like the, the fairness, the theft of the, of the information from the, from the company is stolen, but it's sometimes hard for people to say, well, I know in Ponzi schemes, you know, your life savings is stolen, but insider trading, it's a little bit more nebulous as to who the victim is. And that's some of the psychology we can talk about. So I knew this was going on. Um, I didn't feel like I needed to do it. And then one day um, I got a tip from another investor about a stock that was going to be acquired in a few weeks. Now, wait, wait, you skipped over some stuff. Okay. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah, so, yeah. so because I, uh, I watched some of your other uh, videos and read a little bit and things like that. And so it, it seemed to me that you were, uh, were you like an analyst for the hedge fund or? Um... Yes, I was the junior employee. It was a two person okay. firm. So I had a senior partner uh, about 15 years older than me. I was the junior person. Got right. it. And then you started going to conferences. Right. And in hearing, like realizing how much you're making versus how much other people are making. It sounded right. like to me and like hearing tips at the bar or like people talking, yeah. like what really what was going on for you? Because you're how old at this point? Yeah, I'm 27, 28, 29. So mm-hmm. uh, in the first sort of decade of my career, um, I, I knew in the beginning, even at 23 years old, when I just started, that this was going on. Uh, there were people sort of five to seven years older than me, as you said, uh, blatantly getting this information either from 
um, these CEOs and CFOs at these tech companies that we mm -hmm. trade, they were actually sometimes investors in the hedge funds of the people trading the stock. So you think about, okay, conflict of interest, like, hello, like this is yeah. you know, privy ground for something for, for insider trading to happen. So that was going on. Um, I knew I wasn't a part of that group. Again, never felt I needed to be part of that group. I was always a good, legitimate sort of stock picker, mm -hmm. uh, had that good reputation. Um, I knew what was going on. These guys were making millions of dollars. The most famous individual is Raj Rajaratnam. If people are familiar with insider trading history, you can just Google, mm -hmm. Google his case. And so I was a part of building that case later. Um, so I knew what was going on. And then um, one day, uh, my boss came into my office and said, we have to start making money every month rather than looking out longer term. And so I started looking more for more shorter term opportunities to make every money every mm -hmm. month. And then um, if a goal goes from long term to short term, the opportunity to do something bad um, certainly increases. So that sort of sets the stage. There's not really, is it, a, are you a good person? Or are you a bad person? And we got, we all could be good or bad depending on the incentives and the environment. Oh yeah. Depending on the day. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. So, so you, you, you get this pressure to start making more money. Um, right. Now, do, do you want to share like what, like what's your salary like at this point? Yeah, like, so you salary um, yeah. is probably uh, 150000 but really okay. the, the upside in this business is you get a piece of the profits in the mm -hmm. firm. So, mm -hmm. um, so, you know, living in New York City, it's kind of a standard, a standard salary for somebody uh, starting um, in their career, but really the upside and the reason these, these businesses are so lucrative is that hedge funds get to keep 20% of the profits they make for investors. So mm. if you manage $100 million of um, high net worth family or institutional endowment money mm -hmm. and you make them 30%, uh, they keep 24 million and you get to keep the 6 million, the 20% of the profit. So mm -hmm. it immediately becomes very scalable and very lucrative. Yeah, and literally the highest, the wealthiest people in the world, other than the, the sort of the tech entrepreneurs and founders, are also the hedge fund managers. Got it. Got it. Okay, so you get this pressure, and then what happens? Because wasn't there like a series of events that kind of unfolded? Like, tell me about that. There was so the pressure to make money every month. So, okay, mm -hmm. um, and basically the untold um, message there from the boss is kind of like, "Don't tell me how you're going to do it." So, oh. the ambiguity. And that message is a major thing for, for fraud to happen. So if you're getting an ambiguous message to do what it takes, but don't tell me how you're doing it, that sets the stage for, for, for this whole, now, this whole thing. Now, what did he say? Like, what did he say to give you that message? Was there a line? Was there like a quote? What? Um... It was really, you know, we have to make money every month. Mm -hmm. um, we were investing three to five years, uh, you know, with the, a longer term horizon. Now sure. we have to make money every month. Mm -hmm. And you know what you, you know, basically he didn't say this, but his body language to me, you're being the expert was sort yeah. of like, I read it like, you know, so I'm going to do what I have to do. Uh -huh. And it was basically, I think in what was not said. So mm -hmm. it was sort of like, got it. Nod and then, you know, okay. So mm -hmm. anything goes. And um, so a few months later, uh, a woman who I knew in the industry, another investor, uh, called me and said, Hey, Tom, you'd made me a lot of money legitimately over the last few years on your great stock ideas. I have something for you. Uh -huh. um, and she said, this company was going to be acquired next week, uh, this date, this price mm -hmm. by this firm. So there's nothing gray about that. It's if people remember the movie wall street, you know, yeah. Michael Douglas, it's sort of, Hey, blue, blue horseshoe next week. Like it literally fell in my lap, like this uh -huh. illegal inside information I could trade on fell in my lap. I wasn't looking for it. I wasn't trying to break the law. This one day I went to work 
and she calls and it falls in my lap. And I think now wait, but she had to get that information from somewhere. Like what's, what was the yeah, chain so of information there? The tipping chain was um, her cousin had a roommate who was an analyst at Moody's corporation. Her, wait, wait, her cousin had a roommate. So all these tipping chains, you have okay. to like pull okay. the whole chart up. Uh, so uh-huh. her cousin had a roommate at the Moody's uh, corporation, mm-hmm. Moody's rates uh, bonds. So not to get too technical right. for people, but they mm-hmm. say is this investment grade, which is higher quality, but they rate bonds and usually uh, bonds are issued by private equity firms as the debt to buy companies. So this sure. guy at Moody's, has all this inside information on his clients. Like, I know this company is going to buy this company. He's never supposed to share this type of information. Right. And he shared it with his roommate, you know, young people. This happens a lot. You're in your 20s, four people are are roommates and another roommate's talking about something and you kind of listen in and Uh he heard it and called his cousin, this woman who I knew. So that's how it Uh all. But then why did she call you? And why didn't she act on it herself? Well, she acted on it herself. Well, um, and so she put all of her brokerage account in the stock, which is sort of like, oh my God. That's, her whole brokerage account. That's very nefarious. Yeah. yeah. You, there was no slippery slope or like, I'm going to do it a little bit. Her whole account was in there. She called me, I think to pay me back for the good um, recommendations I had given her over the years. Mm-hmm. It's often in these crimes, um, a friendship case. So sometimes it's not really clear. Well, why is this person giving this information? It's sometimes just to help a friend out. Right. Um, nothing more than that. Uh-huh. She gave it to me. I didn't trade on it. Uh, I called another friend that day who worked at the trading firm and he was losing money that month. And he said, dude, are you hearing anything out there I can trade on? In that moment, I said, you know, I talked to this woman this morning who said this company is going to be acquired uh-huh. next week. And just pausing right there, people aren't familiar with the law. I could now be charged with insider trading just for sharing this oh, wow. public information with him. Uh-huh. I haven't even traded yet. Uh-huh. And then he shares it with somebody at his firm they all buy the stock. They're very excited because it's going to happen in the next week. He calls mm-hmm. me and says, dude, did you buy some? And uh-huh. I hadn't yet. Uh-huh. But as the junior partner at my firm, I could buy a stock in our portfolio and not have to talk to my boss as long as it was less than 1% of all the assets we managed for clients. So if we managed $100 million, as long as it was $999, 999 mm-hmm. I could actually buy that stock and not have to talk to him. Kind of like a small position Usually when we buy stocks, you buy a little bit, you do some more research. If you like it, you buy more. Sure, sure. So that was a starter position. And I can tell you, if people are familiar with the fraud triangle, uh, yeah. need opportunity, rationalization. I certainly mm-hmm. rationalized why I did it. I felt like everybody else is doing it. I'm just doing it small. These guys, Roger Rottenham, those people are making millions. Mm-hmm. I'm doing it small. I would never be caught because I'm trading small. If these guys aren't being caught for the millions of dollars, like why would they ever even look at me? I never considered mm-hmm. the idea of ever being caught. Yeah. Um, I still thought I was a good person. Like, Hey, I can place this tray, but I was still uh, volunteering at my church, the soup kitchen, all that. So uh-huh. sometimes we have this thing in our life. where, like, we're doing 99% good. We kind of cut ourselves some slack and we can do something bad on this side. And so that was sort of my line of thinking. Like I've never really done anything bad in my life other than speeding or in college, there was Napster, which I'm dating myself now, but I remember oh, yeah. Napster, I like a few bet. songs every week today. When I talk to people in their twenties, they're like, oh, I don't, what are you talking about? So, oh, I, don't lo- I, I downloaded yeah. hundreds of songs on Napster. Yeah, so. Napster. So we're all guilty of something <laughs> yeah. in our lives. Uh-huh. It's not the same as insider trading, but it's the same uh, mindset. It's not like I'm Bernie Madoff, like, oh my God, I'm going to have this multi-billion dollar fraud. Right. Like I walked home having committed a, 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 a felony. Uh, but, okay. Wait a minute. So, so let's back up. So you get, uh, so you do this and are you thinking I'm super cool or are you thinking, oh crap, what's going to happen next? Like, like, where's the, 
because you must have had both going on. So what what was really in your mind? Yeah, no, great question. So I rationalized about really like what was I really thinking when I pushed Mm -hmm. the button to buy this stock? I mean, that's all it takes. That's the crime. You just push a couple of keyboards and then you've committed the crime. Yeah, Um, I felt at at the time, the first tip, I didn't really know if this was true. The woman that called me was always full of rumors. Hey, I'm hearing this at the Silicon Valley. Oh, okay. It's sort of like BS. Like now it does sound, you know, this date, this price next week, that sounds pretty specific. But on the first tip, I didn't really know if it was a rumor or what, but I figured um, I would just take a flyer. So mm-hmm. I'm renaming my behavior again there. I'm not saying I'm insider trading. I'm like, I'll just take a little flyer. That's what we call it if you buy a small amount of stock. So with fraud, sometimes a person uses these euphemisms to say, I'm taking a flyer. And so, but really I felt when it actually hit the news wire a week later, exactly as she said, I'd love to tell you that I freaked out and told my boss, holy, you know what? Like, um, I think I just really, you know, uh-huh. <laughs> up really so screwed up. Yeah. I didn't tell him anything. Cause I figured like, if he had a problem with it, you know, again, going back to that first meeting in my office, he would have uh-huh. fired me or, or said something, uh-huh. nothing was said. And I almost felt like, I hate to say it, but truthfully, I felt like an adrenaline rush. Like, yeah oh my God, I'm not part of this group of these individuals who are a little bit older than me in my career who were doing it. And I went to the conference the next week and I'm like, I knew about Kronos and they're like, no, you didn't. Like, you're not part of our group. I'm like, and I know about the next one. And they said, come be a part of the group. So it was about being part of that in group. I think for me in my twenties, I didn't have the self-awareness that hopefully I have now in my early Mm -hmm. forties that like this is, I was so impressionable by these people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. So, so you make it into the in club. I get how that goes at associations and conf- like, I get it. And yeah. so, yeah, you kind of want to be in, in the crowd now. Um, so, so you did like one trade and then how much did that net? Do you know? Yeah. So the one trade, it was four trades. So it happened. I remember the total number for the four trades. It happened the exact same way. She would call me. I would place the trade. The boss says nothing. They were all these less than 1% positions. Mm -hmm. Uh, The firm made 1.2 million for our investors. We managed 100 million of client money. Mm -hmm. We were up 31% that year. So it literally added one more percent to our return. An already great Mm -hmm. year, 30% in any year is a great year. Yeah, that's great, yeah. And so it added one more percent. So it's sort of like, well, I wasn't swinging for the fences. Like, what's the point? of even doing it. And, mm-hmm. and, and so often with the fraud, it's not these sort of headlines we see from time to time. It's often the small totally. 46,000 here and there. And so of the 1.2 million, my take is the junior partner going back to what's supposed to be, you know, the very lucrative part of my compensation, the bonus was mm-hmm. $46,000 on these trades. And so that's really Tracy, like the price of professional suicide at 29. Oh my God. Like, For, that's nothing. I yeah, mean, 46,000 people but, are shocked. They're like, I thought Tipper X was like making millions. Like, that's not that was maybe that's Tipper Y, but Tipper X, <laughs> Tipper X didn't make you know more than forty six thousand dollars, and it's wow. like I never thought about the amount of money I was making or that I would ever be caught. It was just I think being part of this end group, being very impressionable, having no self awareness of myself that I was mm-hmm. sort of um, wanted to please people all the time or be liked by people, so mm-hmm. I was not part of the in group. And of course, I can look back foolishly now, you know that was very foolish 10, 12 years ago, but at the time. I felt like, well, these guys are blatantly doing it. I'm just, I'm part of the group now. Yeah. It's just what's going on. So like, so you do the first one and then, but you did four, like, does it get easier as you go? Like, how does that, are you yeah, thinking, oh does. man, I'm home free. This is nothing. This is just how things really work. Like what? Yeah, no, good question. So I did the first one, I'm a little bit conflicted on it. I didn't buy the stock when she told me I waited a few days, buddy calls me, I rationalize it. 
And then when it happened, the boss said nothing. And those guys are like, you know about the next one too? The second, third, and fourth, um, again, I hate to say it, but it was much easier. It wasn't like losing sleep at night. I wasn't waking up and like, oh my God, I'm going to get busted. Like, mm-hmm. I didn't think about it because we did thousands of trades a year. And if there was like four bad ones, it was almost like bad debt expense, right? So mm-hmm. I'm like, well, yeah, yeah. you know, just sort of that's part of doing business. And so, mm-hmm. and I didn't escalate it. So it was always these small trades. Um, and so the four trades happened. And I didn't really think really twice about it. It was almost like a normal part uh, of the business. Um, now, now with the tips, was it the same girl tipping you off? Yes, it was the same oh. person all four times. About Talking the third to trade, right? Okay. She actually asked for a cash payoff. So oh. uh, I'm literally one day. So I guess you know by the third time, she's like, "All right, you know, we sort of have to reciprocate the individual who's giving her the information or, uh-huh. or compensate this individual." So I'm literally one day going to LaGuardia. I had a conference in California where she lived. Uh-huh. I have like the $15,000 that she wanted strapped to my chest and in my pockets. And this no. before uh, the security machines would get, you know, what's on that, what's on the cash. Uh-huh. I'm literally walking through the TSA. I can't believe it was so brazen. It never went off, got through it, went to the restroom. Now, wait, did you duct ta- hang on back up, back yeah. up. <laughs> <laughs> did you, did you duct tape it to yourself or how, like, how does one go about learning how to strap cash to them? <laughs> right. like, so like, the what goes on? Primary here is, um, I really just stuck it into my shirt, tucked my shirt in. Uh, so I maybe put on 40 pounds or whatever yeah. and then put it. Um, I remember it fitting in my shirt and in my back pocket. So that amount of money when it was in hundreds, it kind of fit yeah. that way. Okay. And so I put my carry on down without the cash in there that went through a scan and I walked through the machine and, and nothing, nothing went off. Um, Were you just so, sweating bullets? Like what? Oh, I was. Yeah. I, I, it's hard for me to get back to like, what the heck was I like? It, it's one thing to answer the phone, place a trade, rationalize it. It's uh-huh. a whole nother thing. When she asked for the cash payoff, I could have said, no, I'm never doing this again. That's, that's yeah, crazy. But you didn't. But I called my friend who I had tipped before and said, can you get the cash together? And so I can pay this, this individual who tipped me. So it wasn't out of my accounts or anything like that. Oh, go through the airport, do this. And there's actually two TSA agents at the gate of my flight, um, searching carry-ons, which I've never seen happen. I've never ever. seen so that. I thought, oh my God, Gosh. they obviously saw me or something. And so here, here it goes. And so they stopped me. I'm one of the, every 10 passengers they are stopping, just searching their carry-ons. Uh-huh. They went through it. I had it in bank envelopes uh-huh. and they gave me back my carry-on. They said, have a nice flight. Oh my gosh. So here, my seat here's, the plane, the thought, here's the oh deal with God. the TSA. Cause I do investigations, um, from time to time, like private, um, people call me and stuff. And uh, one, every, like, I don't know everything. Like I know a lot of stuff uh, when it comes to body language and, and um, you know, detecting lies, but every now and then I'll get stumped in one of the people that um, is on my team that I call when I need help. She's uh, TSA. And so they're, they're watching us and she is a phenomenal body language expert. Really? So man, that you made it through is either she was off that day <laughs> or, <laughs> or you're good. Yeah, no, I just had it. I, I thought maybe I'm flying to San Francisco. So maybe my cover is going to be, I'm going to Vegas. I'm a high roller, you know, uh-huh. 15,000 for that, which again, you, uh, it's red flags, but they didn't say anything. They touched the cash envelopes. I got in the plane. I remember sitting in my seat in the plane thinking at that point, my God, what the F am I doing? Like, uh-huh. oh my God, like, this is crazy. It's like one thing it's just escalated. So it's like the frog uh-huh. in the boiling water where yeah, call, or I know these guys are doing it. The boss says this, she calls me and you can kind of watch that movie. Like, okay, here's this guy going through the airport. It didn't start there, but it's the frog in boiling water. Where, yeah. Oh yeah. I'm the frog. Uh Oh my gosh. Okay. So, so you get out there, you pay her off. 
like t- take us down the line because then like you had you had some run-ins with some authorities yes, yes, <laughs> like, uh, what, what happened uh i paid her the cash i said i'm never i'm never paying like if this person wants cash again i'm done with these it would just be three trades uh-huh. and she called one more time and she said no no cash for this one i understand so it was four trades that was september of 2007 and so July of 2008, so almost a year later, mm-hmm. um, July 8th, 2008, the summer morning, I lived in Manhattan on Midtown West, sort of near the theater district, mm-hmm. leaving my apartment at 6.30 in the morning to go drop off my dry cleaning. Um, and the FBI, an agent stopped me on the street. Like anybody who's like, seen a crime show, you've seen this scene with the FBI, the wallets were out. Hey, come sit with down with us. We have some questions. So there was two of them? Two of them. Um, there was a, a male and female, dark and- suits. And when they stopped me and I saw their wallet, I immediately knew. Like I just knew what it was about. It wasn't like, what are you guys here for? Like I, so it must have been on my conscience, even though I wasn't yeah. actively thinking about it. Like I knew mm-hmm. at that point, and I sat down there. Like we know about your four trades. We know that you were just down in Atlanta visiting your baby nephew for his baptism this weekend. So oh. they they attract me for a while, I think. Uh-huh. And like, okay, we can approach this guy this way. Um, sometimes they'll just sort of be in the in the windbreakers in the hallway of your apartment is, you know, knock on the door and arrest uh-huh. you. But they were approached me this way out in the street. And they said, do you know of the solicit trading going on in the industry, Tom? And I was sort of like, of course it's going on. Like if I. So if immediately I did, you didn't act like you didn't know what was going on. You were just, and I didn't say, yes, you, uh, got me. you know, a more sophisticated person would be like, um, are you going to arrest me or can I have your card, you know, and I'll, uh-huh. I'll talk to an attorney, but I wasn't sophisticated at all. I'm like, yeah, I know what's going on. Yeah, I did it. And I think uh-huh. they were kind of shocked. They were like, okay, sort of <laughs> <laughs> like, all right. It was almost like the Catholic guilt, you know, the confession, like all yeah, right, yeah. confession time, not with the priest, but the FBI. Uh-huh. And I told them, yeah, I did this. In fact, she asked for this cash payoff and they were kind of surprised. I'm like, I didn't even know if they knew that they were like, oh, that's keep going about that. Like, Uh-oh. so I always tell people today, if the FBI approaches you, just sort of take their card, talk to your attorney. I, Oh, who I knew knew? I was guilty, but uh-huh. you know, sort of yeah, like, file that away, huh? <laughs> yeah. And they said, can you help us build some of these bigger cases? Uh-huh. And I said, I guess, but I don't even know what that means. And a few days later, uh, I called them. I said, I hadn't talked to an attorney. Like uh-huh. they actually told me not to. They said, you know, we'll let you know when you can do that, which is kind of is that, messed up on their ethics. Quite, part, yeah. like, you know, but that's just the point of like, they have to build their cases and do what it takes to go up the career ladder there. And so I'm just another rung on the, on the belt, which yeah. is just how it is. And so I don't hold that against them really, but I should have mm-hmm. known I could have talked to an attorney. I didn't, mm-hmm. I called them and said, okay, I'm ready to, I guess, quote, help you, but what does it mean to help you? And they said, you're going to have to wear a body wire. Uh, and so it wasn't like strapped to my chest. It fit in my front shirt pocket uh-huh. and we get people of interest in the industry who they were interested in in these face-to-face conversations about a time in the past they had insider trade. So we can talk about uh-huh. how I was coached to do that. Um, yeah, but, yeah, yeah. What I mean, what did they tell you? So the setup was um, they weren't giving me names of people that they were felt were guilty. They said, Tom, it was a one-way street. Tom, who do you think is the worst? are the worst actors in the industry? And so I went back to my apartment, made a list of 10 people who were really much older than me. I'm in my 20s. These are 40-year-old, like mm-hmm. multi-centillionaires, yeah. like, big guys. And uh, I said, I think this guy's business is just insider trading. Like this is all he does on four stocks is what uh-huh. I've heard. I don't know him that well. So how am I going to wear a wire? And they said, well, build relationships, get to know them. Uh, mention my passport trades for them. I'm a young buck um, play up to their ego. You know, uh-huh. Hey, um, I'm wearing this wire. So it's a recording device. I would rehearse it with the FBI, meet a person who I felt was of interest to them uh-huh. at these conferences. And it's a little bit startling. Like 
you know, why is this kid asking me about times I insider traded? Like that's kind of a weird. Yeah, way how do you how do you start a conversation like so, that? Basically, I was coached with um, the FBI knew about a situation uh, that looked like insider trading with the individual, or I may have known about it through their reputation mm-hmm. because at the time, certain traders at the time were very good on certain stocks based on where they got their sources of information. Okay. So I said, oh, I, I hear you're good trading Apple stock around their quarterly announcement. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me, you know, like if you were ever asked about why you traded Apple around the quarter, like what would you say? Like, to get the person to create a cover story yeah. for what they would actually say. And so I guess that's enough for the FBI to be like, all right, we could maybe bring a case. So it's a little bit entrapment, like, okay, yeah. what would you say? I'm recording it. Usually there's a pause. Like if I'm asking you a pointed question, especially doing what you do, you'd probably not answer it and look at me like, why is this guy who I don't know, don't know that well asking me such a pointed yeah. question? And so <laughs> I would eventually fill the silence because it was so awkward. I felt like this wires. 10 feet tall next to yeah, me. Yeah, silence is hard. Oh, it's yeah, so hard. yeah. And so there's silence. They're looking at me and I'm like, all right, so how about just change the subject? The FBI, they were listening to it after I recorded it. It wasn't um, contemporaneously. So they so listened didn't to have it. An like, Tom, you're doing such a bad job. You have to let the person talk. And of course, I'm like, it's my first time doing this, guys. All right. Like, uh-huh. <laughs> and it was sort of like, there was a female and male. The male was sort of the bad cop. The female played the good cop. Hey, you're doing okay. And so that was their psychological play with me. Like, uh-huh. this is how they did it. And eventually I got people talking like all the time, like eventually people trusted me, started talking to me about illicit trades. Uh, I had no idea this was going anywhere. Like the FBI would hear it. They wouldn't even say good job or anything. They just, they just stopped saying bad job. Uh-huh. So I did this like 47 times over two years, um, recording these conversations and not hearing anything back. And then in the 2009, October 16th, I turn on CNBC and there's like 20 people in handcuffs and I'm actually, uh, we, my wife and I just, my wife had just given birth to our first daughter. I'm in the hospital, turn on CNBC, like, holy, you know, oh boy. what's going on. And I talked to the FBI that day and they said, this is all, this is all your work. And so it was sometimes people who I was one off from. So the, uh-huh. the big person in handcuffs, like a Roger Rodden wasn't somebody I got in a discussion, but it was because of my work. I helped them lead to other people to love the people who led to the big fish. Mm-hmm. But they said it wouldn't have happened without me. And it was like people getting arrested nonstop on CNBC, like all morning, like October, 2009. So I'm like, this is like actually happening. Wow. Okay. So, so when you see this, you're in the hospital, like what happens next? Are you like, they're coming for me now? Or did, did they give you some kind of immunity? What? Uh... Oh no. So that was October, 2009. Um, they told me it was time to hire an attorney now. And so I called an attorney. <laughs> you can imagine how this went. So I'm like, I Googled, I basically Googled who was Martha Stewart's attorney. Cause that's all I knew about insider trading. Like yeah. I, I didn't really know about it and he was very expensive. So he referred me to somebody else who was, <laughs> uh, and oh I, I wasn't going to trial. So, you know, the legal fee was going to be much less. I was going to plead guilty. So, mm-hmm. uh, I called an individual and said, Hey, I, I'm Tipper X in these cases. And he's like, okay, well, who was your attorney the last two years? I said, you're the first I've spoken to. He's like, you're supposed to talk to me the first day the FBI approached you. I said, you uh-huh. know what? It's my first time doing this again. It's sort of like, yeah. I was following their orders and they uh-huh. told me to talk to you. And so I pled guilty in 2009, December, uh-huh. and I was supposed to be sentenced six months later. And I wasn't sentenced for six years until 2015 because they had to arrest and prosecute everybody I helped them with so I could get credit for that. Uh-huh. So it was almost like if I had said the first day on the street, I'm not going to help you. I go to prison. I would have been through the system quicker, I guess, oh, but probably okay. would have lost my marriage, you know? So mm-hmm. um, six years, to be sentenced. And I was finally sentenced to know 
prison because of my cooperation and because it took six years, but there was no immunity. I'm still a convicted felon, uh, unfortunately. And no matter how much I do these talks, it's not going to, it's not going to go away. So, right. Right. So, yeah. okay. So six years, what'd you do for six years? Yeah. So it's very tough because Tipper X came out in January, 2010, the wall street journal figured it out. Tipper X is Tom Harden. Mm-hmm. So nonstop people were coming by the house for a quote. I was a stay at home dad with my infant uh-huh. daughter. It's a 24 hour news story. So that, that went away, yeah. but really I'm applying for jobs. I'm trying to get like back office finance spreadsheet. Well, cause you got fired now or did you leave? Oh yeah. So I left my firm. Sorry. I left my firm. I'm skipping around a bit. I left my mm-hmm. firm before my name became public okay. a few months before. Cause I kind of got wind of like, okay, it's going to come soon. It happened a few months later. So I'm out of work before my name uh, was mm-hmm. relieved. So, mm-hmm. and, um, I basically left my firm saying, you know, with the financial crisis, I did poorly in 2008 because I wasn't doing well anyways, but there was other things going on in my life, obviously. Yeah, yeah, you think, <laughs> so, yeah. So it didn't, I don't think it tipped my boss off, like something's going on, you know, it was, everybody left. So you never told your boss? Never told him about this. Um, he was never charged. Uh, the firm had to pay back the profits they made on the four trades. Uh-huh. Um, and so never charged. And so I was a stay-at-home dad for six years. Um you know, I, I think I was really depressed. I never talked to a sure. psychiatrist. My wife did stay with me. Thank God she had a job so I could be at home with them. But then we mm-hmm. had a, a second daughter um, and I was really getting uh, overweight and, and like obese and like really, oh. really heavy. I went to the doctor one day and he's like, man, your, your blood markers are off the charts. Like what's going on in your life? I, I was thinking like, you have an hour. <laughs> I, guess uh, like, oh uh, I got, got some stress going on. He sort of did the scared shit with me. You got to start exercising or, you know, it's not going to be good for you. Uh-huh. So my wife signed me up for a 5k. Um, I know you're a cyclist and uh, yeah, you know, yeah. I got running. So 10k's half marathons, marathons, wow. gone to ultra marathons, qualified for the Boston marathon. I was running so much, Tracy, though. I was running like twice a day. Mm-hmm. I was trying to, I think, not deal with what I needed to deal with because um, this was my only outlet. I couldn't get a job applying for a job. It was, oh, yeah. You can't do that as a white collar felon. It's, it's out there yeah. everywhere. Oh, no. And endurance so sports are exercise. great for that. Yeah. 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 I got to exercise so much and got into ultra marathons, uh-huh. 100 mile races. And it was like, that's all I could control was just getting myself in shape so I could be around for my kids. And I had mm-hmm. no idea. Still, when I was going to be sentenced, it finally happened in 2015. Mm-hmm. What would happen? Would we go into prison or not? So Yeah. Well, what did happen? So I was sentenced in 2015 to, to uh, what's called time served, um, which is like I was in a, I was in, I had to self-surrender to the FBI in 2009 just for a few hours. So that was like less than a quarter of a day waiting mm-hmm. to be processed. So that was my sentence, but I'm still a convicted felon. Um, you know, can't have any type of brokerage account, can't ever work in a regulated industry again. Mm-hmm. And I actually can't even have a checking account in my name. So if yeah. I wasn't married, I'm not sure what would happen because it's a um, fi- insider trading is a financial crime. Uh-huh. So it's viewed as the same as a Ponzi scheme or an embezzler. Um, and so I'll go to like a retail bank, like a TD bank. I'll open an account. They don't ask you the question when you open the checking account. Two weeks later, I get a letter in the mail with no reason, just saying we're closing your account. That oh. doesn't say why. And I finally figured out a banker called me from his cell phone one day. He's like, uh, you're on every money laundering list in the world, just so you know. I'm like, I'm like money laundering. But I knew, obviously, it has to do with my case. But like, oh, my God, like, it's a life consequence for some of these, you know. Wow. Happen. Like, it's sort of so like then, a, so how, how's your wife doing through this whole thing? I mean, surprisingly, she held it together. I mean, she stayed with me. And yeah. uh, 85% of marriages end when a spouse gets a felony. I mean, it's mm-hmm. not a surprise. Like, most spouses, especially in my industry, married the hedge fund person for that future yeah, lifestyle. Yeah, for the cash, you bet, yeah. The future lifestyle of a convicted felon. So mm-hmm. 
Um, I wasn't allowed to tell anybody except for her when the FBI approached me. Uh-huh. I waited a few days. I'm having panic attacks, yeah. bed sweats. So she knows something up. You know, I, I usually like to keep, keep it light, make her laugh. But like, I was really depressed. Uh, it was scary. Um, and so I told her one Friday after work, um, young couple in New York City, sort of, how was your week? She was actually working at Lehman Brothers. So up to this point, she had some great stories about yeah. what was going on. And I'm like, wait a minute, let me go first. Uh, the FBI just approached me that week. I'm like, I have... So I need to tell you, you got to sit down so she could see I'm serious. I told her and it's sort of like, what? Like, I thought you were going to say something else, Mm -hmm. but she's like, you didn't do anything to hurt me, but oh my God, this is going to impact us. Yeah. But the way she took it was like, I wasn't trying to hurt her. Like if it was infidelity or something. Right. That's different. Yeah. I think she was preparing for something like that. Not, I mean, this is sort of like out of left field, like FBI, what? Like, can you say that again? Like, Uh and it wasn't easy, obviously, but we got. We got through it. I think she just felt like, okay, you got us into this. Um, I have faith you're going to get us out of this. So uh-huh. um, it's very rare though, like for the, for the spouse to, um, to stay with the person. Um, yeah. Yeah. So. Wow. Okay. So then what's going on now for you? Like how, how long it's been, what, six years? Is that yeah. Six you're... years since I was sentenced for this. Yeah. Um, again, just because I'm sentenced doesn't mean I can get a job. I mean, it's still out right. there. And so so you, are you uh, just was, speaking now or what are you doing? Yeah, so I was told you have to start your own company. I, I tried various companies. I tried drop shipping items from Alibaba in China onto Amazon. And uh-huh. My listings were hijacked by my suppliers in China. And then oh. 2016, that summer, the FBI called me again. I thought, oh my God, what, what do these guys want now? Yeah. And my wife's kind of like, what? I, didn't, I don't think I did anything. Not, you know, There's no Napster anymore. <laughs> so <laughs> what, what, what am I doing? And they said, Tom, it's the agent I knew. He's like, we have our rookie agents in. Uh, only if you're interested, Tom, we'd love to have somebody who we work with as a cooperator come mm-hmm. train them about what it's like when you would tap somebody's shoulder on the street. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is it like? And I went and talked to the FBI and they're like, Tom, the 46,000 you made was like the third lowest anybody made in those 85 cases. And I was the youngest guy they charged. So they're like the whole thing. Like, why did you do it? Like, uh-huh. why did she call you? Why did you like? And so I told the agents and they're like, man, you could go make lemonade out of lemons. Like, okay, there's an opportunity to go speak about this. I'm so introverted and analytical. I, I had fear of speaking. And, and also who wants to speak about this? Like, it's interesting to have another topic to speak about, obviously, as you know, but like who wants to go out there and say Mia culpa all the time and say, here's the worst thing I ever did and be that vulnerable. Yeah. They said, no, actually, I think people can learn from this because we see it every decade. There's a new crime, there's young people, there's rationalization. Uh-huh. And so they told me some books to read about the psychology of, of the, of the behavior I put that with my story. I cold emailed 400 financial firms in New York City. Hey, I'm Tipper X. Can I come talk to your team? Uh-huh. I got two responses. One thought it was a cybersecurity attack because he's like, uh-huh. wait, is this real? I'm like, okay, I can I can give you a referral for like phishing training. But there's uh-huh. also another guy that had me and didn't pay me. He's like, oh, I'll be happy to give a referral. Come talk to my team. Uh-huh. And I taught I taught them about what we just talked about now. He gave me a referral and that's how the speaking started. So it's been sort of five years uh, over 300 something talks. Um, basically I do it as part of annual compliance training, which we all know, uh, mm-hmm. in any industry can be very, very dry. So I come in, oh, yeah. hey, I sat in your seat story and it's also ethics training. I've been doing ethics courses for associations like CPAs, mm-hmm. um, just pulling together elements in their careers where there's that line we can all cross. Why do we do it? It's all about the moral temptation too often with ethics. We talk about ethical dilemmas, which is like, here's a right, here's a right. And mine is like, here's a right. Here's a wrong. Uh-huh. Why do we choose the wrong? And I think people think beforehand, I would never choose a wrong. Like if you read the Tom Harden case, it'd take you two seconds. Like I wouldn't do that. But then again, 
What are the incentives? What's the environment? We all have the capacity to do something bad. And that's really what the talk is about and what I've been doing the past, the past couple of years. So I sort of fell into it. Uh-huh. The speaking thing. Wow. So then what do you, uh, like, like, what's your message for folks? Like, in, like the take home that, that, I mean, even today or, uh, with, with your keynotes, like what's, what's the, yeah, so, they, so, they all want, you know, when we speak, they all want know, right? takeaways, right? So what yeah, exactly. Doing? So, um, I go back to, at that moment, she calls me, I traded, I made a decision in isolation. So the perils of isolated decision-making, like I didn't uh-huh. talk to my boss, didn't talk to anybody else at my firm, mm-hmm. didn't talk to anybody outside my firm about what I was seeing. And since I spoke at the FBI, um, five years ago now, I've done this deeper dive into other white collar fried. Uh, white collar crime in the in the U.S. and there's thousands and thousands of people charged every year just like me. Mm-hmm. And it often goes back to a person uh, makes a decision, doesn't talk to anybody, crosses that line. So that's one thing. Uh, I often talk to younger people that really have a good audience with people just in the first few years of their career, mm-hmm. where all you maybe hear is success stories and hey, here's another way your career could go. And I'm very vulnerable about sharing everything. They can ask me anything. I always tell them make sure you have a mentor. Um, I had no mentors in my 20s. Had I known anybody outside my business, I think at that time and said, you won't believe what's going on in this industry. This woman just called me. You know, if you were my mentor, anybody would have slapped me around. Why would you ever do that? You're already 28. You're in a fantastic organization or potential to to never have to work again if this career goes well for you. Why would you ever cross that line? So I think it's really important for young people to have mentors. I also think it's important. We have such a big speak up culture now in every industry about if Mm -hmm. we see something we never talk about the listen up side. So I'll often speak at a, a bank or a big accounting firm where it says speak up on the law, but the young people are afraid to because they never hear back. And so it's important for senior managers to listen up. Um, so those are some of the takeaways. And also just have, a, uh, have some self-awareness. You know, when you're young, what are, you, uh, what are your sort of, you know, Myers-Briggs, the personality test? What are your strengths? Mm-hmm. What are your weaknesses? I didn't realize I just wanted to please people so much and be liked by people uh, in my 20s. Um, you know, at that time. So those are some of the takeaways. And I always customize it for who's in the crowd. Sure, sure. What's going on. So, oh, wow. So um, w- one last tip for our audience here. What, what, what have you skipped? Like something really important that people may find some value in. Yeah. So I guess one thing to end on is I've done this, you know, talk so many times and sometimes people will come up to me and they'll say, you know, they're going through something crazy in their life that's self-inflicted. Maybe like mm-hmm. I was not not committing a crime, maybe a relationship in the mm-hmm. family or maybe professionally. Right. And they're so caught up on it. They can't get through it. And I was that way for years. Like I was just running like a madman doing these ultra marathons, not dealing with it. Mm-hmm. And so I think these experiences in our life, I've, I've often will get coffee with somebody after a talk and just sort of go through uh, talking about their life. And so these experiences can either define us for the rest of our life. So again, this could have just defined me forever and I would have all the shame and maybe even be, you know, suicidal or something at some point it can destroy us. It destroys marriages, relationships, or we can develop from it. So that's kind of how I frame it, define, destroy, or develop. And we can develop from anything. I mean, I want to go to my grave, not with these four stock tickers on the grave. I want to say, all right, he screwed up, but look what he did, you know, for the rest of his life. So um, that's one thing just to think about. I mean, it's amazing, especially now with pandemic and the focus mm-hmm. on mental health and all that, like you can develop from any situation if it's self-inflicted, if you choose to. Um, so that's, that's one main, main takeaway. It's wow. Really main takeaway, you know? So, so do you think, uh, like two questions and then we'll be done. Do you think you're a better person now? And what, what, what do you think your legacy is going to be? 
I don't know if I'm a better person now. I think I'm always, I mean, there could be another situation, not hopefully a crime, but something that I can always rationalize. I think I have a higher sense of self-awareness of like, okay, Mm -hmm. um, someone to be talking to me. You know, I had a friend, um, PPP fraud is a huge thing. Yeah. uh, Getting PPP loans. Had a friend that owns a small business. He was thinking about going down the slippery slope, naming a a contractor as his employees. Mm -hmm. My intent is so high for this stuff now. And I said, hey, so-and-so, do you want to be like me? No. Your line of thinking right now is leading you that that way if you're going to apply mm-hmm. for PPP and these people aren't your employees. So right. I have an intent. Not, not, I don't think that makes me a better person, but I have a better intent for it. Um, and then what was the second question? Uh, uh, legacy. Legacy. I just hope um, you know people can learn from the story. I mean, I hope to be speaking for a long time and that you know people will look back. My, my children will, will learn from this. They're now 11 and 9 they know what I do on their own, own terms. I mean, they were Googling me, yeah. you know, especially the last sort of 18 months. Hey, what do you speak about? We've talked about it. Uh, it's been a good teaching example for them about, Hey, this happened. This is why it happened, but also look at what I'm doing now because I didn't want them to hear about it from another parent at their school. So, mm. you know, you know, so-and-so's dad is, is this guy. And so um, I hope to leave a legacy, just like, look, you can rebound uh, from, you know, self-inflicted situations like this. Mm-hmm. I'm not, some people say, oh, it's inspiring, but inspiring is like, you know, you're hit by a bus and then you do something like self-inflicted career decimation. You know, I sort of say that tongue in cheek, but that's really yeah. what it's like, all right, you've done something, but what do you do about that going forward? So I'm mm-hmm. hoping I'm looked at more, you know, that way in the future as a, as a legacy. Wow. Well, you know what? I'm glad you're out there spreading the message and doing what you're doing. So thanks for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me on, Tracy. It's been a pleasure. Okay. Thanks for joining me. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast, rate and review it. I'll see you next time.